Welcome to In the Stacks, brought to you by the Lewistown Public Library in Lewistown, Montana, a podcast about the wide and wild world of libraries. Hi guys, it's Brittany here. Welcome to another episode of In the Stacks. This week we are finally diving into some spooky campfire stories, just in time for camping season. Like the description suggests, the stories that we share in this episode are scary, so if you're sensitive to that or if you have children listening, please be aware of that and take care of yourself accordingly. But if chilling, unsettling, scary tales are what you are into, you are going to love this episode of Campfire Stories. Well, hey, Brittany, how you doing? I'm excellent. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm great. Guess what? It's summer. I know, about time. I, know. <laughs> I think the last podcast that we put out there was still snow on the ground. It, there was. I think it had snowed like four or five inches. That was spectacular. Um, so it's summertime. And in our family, we go camping a whole bunch in the summer. What do you guys do? I know. We try to. We don't get out as often as I'd like to. Um, but, you know, <laughs> we try. <laughs> we try. It's always worth the try. Yeah. Well, we, we go camping all the time. I think we've already gone camping three times this year and it's nice. like in the middle of June. Um, but one of my favorite things about camping and especially uh, in the summer is how long the days are yep. and how you kind of have that dusky evening time uh, for so long and sitting around the campfire in evening is one of my favorite, favorite things of all time. One of the things that I've always loved to do is tell stories around the fire. I think it feels very, uh, like it connects you to this like more ancient human way of gathering around the fire and coming together as a family or a unit and sharing stories to create bonds, to learn and to be a part of like the community. And you're like engaged in the story. You don't have, you know, the TV blaring or like exactly the temptation of scrolling through your phone. Well, and (laughs) and that, and also like the skill of being able to tell a story. Yeah, it's interesting. In our modern day, we don't do that very much anymore. And again, when we go camping, especially me and my family, when we remove ourselves from all of those like great, wonderful distractions that we have, uh, you can kind of connect to that more, I don't want to say primal, but it's kind of a more primal reality. And, and you're forced to tell stories because again, they're not so easily accessible. Yeah. Um, and so I love, I love sitting around the campfire and just talking about the day and telling stories. And I'm really excited to be able to tell spooky stories. Yep. Uh, but at the, <laughs> at present, <laughs> My children are too small, so we do not tell <laughs> at all because then we would not sleep at all. Yeah, but it's kind of one of my favorite things in that evening dusk time to share that story. Um, but yeah, I, I love it. And do you do you read spooky stories that much? Are you connected to kind of the creepier side, the more yeah. thrilling side of story? Um, not not as much as I used to be when I was younger. Like when I was 
in high school, I was really into like scary movies and like I had the whole like Saw <laughs> series on TV. Oh my gosh. Oh, that was so scary. I <laughs> yeah, I was into like the really gory, gross, you know, that kind of uh, horror sort of stuff. And now I'm, you know, more into like thinking about what what scares me in a story is like when things are there's a really subtle like disturbing undertone that's what creeps me out is when mm-hmm. a story can like carry that tension of like eh, something's not quite right here and it could be like horrifying mm-hmm. but you you don't know um and even if you know sometimes the reveal is not as satisfying as you know you anticipate it to be as you're you know reading the story or listening to the story or watching this scary story but the thing that gets me the most is just writing that line of tension throughout the story i think that's the most fun part and i think that's why people gravitate toward scary stories sometimes is not for the payoff but for like that adrenaline rush of like anticipating the scare Mm -hmm. you know that suspense you know those authors and those narrators that can hold that suspense I am beyond baffled by how they can do that because right it's incredible amazing willpower yeah to not just tell you know they're holding all of these keys and they're doing this Hansel and Gretel type thing into the woods like I will give you this crumb and I will give you this crumb Yep. all the while knowing exactly where they're going to take you. Yeah. That is amazing. But like making sure that it's still the whole like element of the unknown is not tarnished for the reader. Like, yeah, they'll leave all these breadcrumbs, leave all these clues. And as a reader or a watcher or consumer or whatever, you have no idea that those are the clues you're looking for. And then mm-hmm. at the end, when it's all revealed and the big scare happens, you're like, oh man, how did I not see this coming? Like they laid this all out perfectly, um, but in such a subtle way that it was still a surprise. Isn't that great? Love it. I love that. I love that too. I think we should share some spooky, scary, suspenseful stories with our listeners this week. What do you think? Yeah, I've got some good ones. Good ones. Well, let's do that then. Sweet. All right. Here are some spooky campfire or otherwise tales um, (laughs) to to scare you. That is our goal. (laughs) That is our goal. (laughs) All right. Some of the most fun campfire stories that I know are legends and folklore and tales from other cultures. It's fun to gather around a fire and share these stories and they're kind of spooky and kind of wonderful and the fire and the night makes it even better. So I thought I'd gather a couple of those for this little 
podcast of ours, and the first one that I'm going to read to you is called Crow Brings Daylight. And this is a tale told by the Inuit culture, and of course this is just a version of it, and I'm sure it would be even more fun and more exciting sitting around a fire, gathered with the people that you love, the friends that you have, listening to this tale. A long time ago, when the world was first born, it was always dark in the north where the Inuit people lived. They thought it was dark all over the world until an old crow told them about daylight and how he had seen it on his long journeys. The more they heard about daylight, the more the people wanted it. We could hunt further and for longer, they said. We could see the polar bears coming and run before they attack us. The people begged the crow to go and bring them daylight, but he didn't want to. It's a long way, and I'm too old to fly that far, he said. But the people begged until he finally agreed to go. He flapped his wings and launched into the dark sky towards the east. He flew for a long time until his wings were tired. He was about to turn back when he saw the dim glow of daylight in the distance. At last, there is daylight, said the tired. As he flew towards the dim light, it became brighter and brighter until the whole sky was bright and he could see for miles. The exhausted bird landed in a tree near a village, wanting to rest. It was very cold. A daughter of the chief came to the nearby river. She had dipped her bucket into the icy water. Crow turned himself into a speck of dust and drifted down onto her fur cloak she walked back to her father's snow lodge, she carried the crow with her. Inside the snow lodge, it was warm and bright. The girl took off her cloak, and the speck of dust drifted towards the chief's grandson, who was playing on the lodge floor. It floated into the child's ear, and he started to cry. "'What's wrong? Why are you crying?' asked the chief, who was sitting at the fire. Tell him what you want to play. You want to play with a ball of daylight, whispered the dust. The chief wanted his favorite grandson to be happy and told his daughter to fetch the box of daylight. When she opened it for him, he took out a small ball, wrapped a string around it, and gave it to his grandson. The speck of dust scratched the child's ear again, making him cry, "'What's wrong, child?' asked the chief. "'Tell him you want to play outside,' whispered Crow. The child did so, and the chief and his daughter took him out into the snow. As soon as they left the snow lodge, the speck of dust turned back into Crow again. He put out his claws, grasped the string on the ball of daylight, and flew into the sky, heading west. Finally, he reached the land of the Inuit again, let go of the string, the ball dropped to the ground and shattered into tiny pieces. Light went in at every home and darkness left the sky. All the people came from their houses. We can see for miles. Look how blue the sky is and the mountains in the distance. We couldn't see them before. They thanked Crow for bringing daylight to their land and he shook his beak. I could only carry one small ball of daylight, 
and it'll need to gain its strength from time to time. So you'll only have daylight for half the year. The people said, but we're happy to have daylight for half the year. Before you brought the ball to us, it was dark all the time. And so that is why in the land of the Inuit in the far north, it is dark for one half of the year and light the other. The people never forgot it was Crow who brought them the gift of daylight and they take care never to hurt him in case he decides to take it back. I love that. That is so much fun. It's also a really fun way to talk about the cyclical nature of a lot of things in our life is to create a story around it and bringing light into the night is a great story for around the campfire. is called the Harlem Hotel and it's from the collection Montana Chillers 13 True Tales of Ghosts and Hauntings by Ellen Baumler. Parents have rules for a reason but sometimes kids disobey. Ten-year-old Jeff Bickenhauser had the scare of his life one evening when he broke the rules. Jeff grew up in the town of Harlem halfway between Malta and Haver. Harlem sits along Montana's High Line at the very edge of the Fort Belknap Indian Reservation. Founded in 1889, the year Montana became a state, Harlem was a railroad town. The old buildings from Harlem's early days stood empty down by the railroad tracks. Parents warned their children not to play down there. The ramshackle buildings were unstable and dangerous. One summer evening, Jeff and his friend Jesse decided to ignore the rules. They had finished their dinner and there was still plenty of daylight. The boys headed down to the tracks. They wanted to explore. The Harlem Hotel was one of the oldest buildings in town. In the early days, it was the finest place to stay in northern Montana. Travelers passing through town spent the night there while waiting for the next train. Ranchers came to do business there. The Harlem Hotel had steam heat and hot water, as well as a fancy dining room. Back in those days, a room cost $2 a night. Those days were over. The hotel was abandoned and crumbling, and Jeff and Jesse could hardly imagine that anyone had ever stayed there. It was nothing like the modern motels they'd seen while on vacation. This old hotel was a mess. And that's what they liked. They found the collapsing ruin irresistible. Sometimes the setting sun casts a bright red glow as it drops toward the horizon. And that's what the sunset looked like on that warm summer evening. The boys figured they had enough time to explore before it got dark. They imagined there were treasures left from long ago, waiting to be discovered. Jeff and Jesse made their way to the front door and stepped inside leaving the heat of the day behind them. The air inside was cool and stale. Light came through the cracks in the walls, casting dim shadows in the old lobby. 
Dust and cobwebs glistened in the sun's red rays. Shreds of wallpaper clung to the ceiling, and debris littered the floorboards. It was creepy. The boys stepped out of the lobby and into the dining room, where a hundred years ago guests ate fine meals of roast chicken or beefsteak, biscuits and honey, and warm apple pie. Through the filtered light, they saw bits of plaster, broken glass, and pigeon droppings covering the floor. Dust hung thick in the air, and cobwebs, fixed to the ceiling, floated above their heads. Although the floor creaked, the building seemed solid enough to the boys, so they carefully climbed the narrow stairway to the second floor. There, they found a long, dark hallway. Jeff wished he had brought his flashlight. He and Jesse moved down the black corridor. Hey Jeff, there's nothing much in this old place, Jesse noted uneasily. Not wanting his friend to guess that he too was a little nervous, Jeff replied gruffly, Ah, this place is just a dump, but maybe we can find something useful. Come on, let's look. They discovered rooms on each side of the hall and began to peer through each doorway, one by one. There was not much to capture their interest. There was a broken dresser in one room, some rusty bed springs in another, and a cast-off chair here and there. The boys did not find the treasure they sought. Jeff and Jesse slowly inched their way to the very last room. As they peered inside, they saw that it was not empty. Sitting in the center was an old-fashioned wooden wheelchair, the kind with a woven seat. They had seen these old wheelchairs in movies, but they had never seen a real one. They knew exactly what it was. The boys looked at each other, and silently they wondered what it was doing there. They both stood in the doorway for a long moment, staring. The day's last light shone through the broken window and cast a reddish glow on the solitary object in the middle of the room. Suddenly, the boys saw something. They looked at each other. Neither said a word, but each knew that the other had seen it. As the dim light hit the wheelchair, it caught the metal spokes. The boys' eyes grew wide and their mouths hung open as they saw the spokes of the wheels move. Jeff and Jesse froze. In the darkening room, they could see that the wheelchair was creeping toward them. The boys looked at each other one more time. They both had the same idea. The frightened pair spun around and bounded down the hall, past all the rooms where darkness was now beginning to creep. Just minutes before, the distance to the stairway had not seemed long at all, but now it seemed endless. They could not get there fast enough. As they approached the staircase, the only sound was the pounding of their sneakers on the old floorboards and the thumping of their hearts. They could sense something behind them, but neither had the courage to turn around and look. Finally, after what seemed like an eternity, the pair tumbled down the stairs, one on top of the other, in their rush to get out. They landed at the bottom of the steps in a tangle, picked themselves up, and leapt for the door. The terrified boys stumbled outside. Only then did Jeff have the courage to turn and look back into the silent building. The doorway to the hotel, so enticing before, now seemed like a giant mouth that threatened to swallow them. Jeff felt lucky to have escaped. 
Out of breath and shaking with fear, Jeff slowly stepped toward the doorway and peered inside. His eyes adjusted to the dark, and he shifted his gaze to the bottom of the stairs, where he and Jesse had been just seconds before. What he saw still sends chills through his body. The memory of it brings on bad dreams, even though he is now an adult. There, at the foot of the stairs, was the empty wheelchair, waiting. Campfires are also a great place for those spooky and unnerving kind of stories. And so I found a couple of those that aren't too terrible <laughs> or terrifying. Um, but it's fun because, again, it's in the vein of legends. And there are these lights that appear on Brown Mountain. And this is a couple of the stories that surround the reason for these lights. So let's listen in. As mountains go, low-lying Brown Mountain in Burke County is not impressive. Yet it is one of the most famous mountains in North Carolina. On certain evenings soon after dark, when observed from the eminence of Linville or Wiseman's Gap, small but brilliant lights can be seen on it, bobbing up and down for a minute or so, then disappearing, then reappearing in another place until finally they are gone. They were first seen about 1850, so very long before trains, electricity, and automobiles. One legend tells of a girl who lived on the mountain with her father. Every night, her sweetheart came from the village to see her, tramping through a forest of snakes and vicious animals. On the evening when he was to take her away to be married, she lighted a torch and went out to welcome him but he never came. But from then on, at sunset, she raised her flaming torch and darted from here to there on the mountain, hoping to come upon him. After her death, the lights of her torch could still be seen on stormy nights. The lights of Brown Mountain, thus, are from a long lost love. But people have a different thing. People have a different story for that. Uh, Another of these legends about the Brown Mountain Lights. Another legend concerns a wicked man named Jim, whose sweet-tempered young wife, Belinda, was to have a child. Jim started to court Susie and began to speak harsh words and be cruel to Belinda. One day, neighbors noticed that they had not seen Belinda for some while. Jim said that she had gone to visit her kinfolk, but the neighbors were suspicious. When they discovered bloodstains on the floor of the mountain cabin, their suspicions were further heightened when an indignant stranger drove away from Jim's house with his horse and wagon. They believed the stranger had helped Jim kill and bury Belinda, and Jim was paying him off in this way. Soon afterward, the lights appeared, bobbing up and down, seemingly to guide searchers looking for Belinda. 
Finally, under a pile of stones in a deep ravine, they found the skulls of a woman and a baby. Jim left the county and was never heard from again. But the lights stayed on, reminding evildoers that their crimes will be revealed. Apart from legends, scientists have provided many explanations for the mysterious brown mountain lights. None of them are satisfactory. Creepy, unidentified stories are perfect for campfire tales. These next two stories come from the collection Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, collected by Alvin Schwartz. The first is called Cold as Clay. A farmer had a daughter for whom he cared more than anything on earth. She fell in love with a farmhand named Jim, but the farmer did not think Jim was good enough for his daughter. To keep them apart, he sent her to live with her uncle on the other side of the country. Soon after she left, Jim got sick, and he wasted away and died. Everyone said he died of a broken heart. The farmer felt so guilty about Jim's death, he could not tell his daughter what had happened. She continued to think about Jim and the life they might have had together. One night, many weeks later, there was a knock on her uncle's door. When the girl opened the door, Jim was standing there. Your father asked me to get you, he said. I came on his best horse. Is there anything wrong, she asked. I don't know, he said. She packed a few things and they left. She rode behind him, clinging to his waist. Soon he complained of a terrible headache. It aches something awful, he told her. She put her hand on his forehead. Why, you are cold as clay, she said. I hope you are not ill. And she wrapped her handkerchief around his forehead. They traveled so swiftly that in a few hours they reached the farm. The girl quickly dismounted and knocked on the door. Her father was startled to see her. Didn't you send for me? She asked. No, I didn't, he said. She turned to Jim, but he was gone, and so was the horse. They went to the stable to look for them. The horse was there. It was covered with sweat and trembling with fear, but there was no sign of Jim. Terrified, her father told her the truth about Jim's death. They quickly went to see Jim's parents. They decided to open his grave. The corpse was in its coffin, but around its head, they found the girl's handkerchief. The next story is called Room for One More. A man named Joseph Blackwell came to Philadelphia on a business trip. He stayed with friends in the big house they owned outside the city. That night they had a good time visiting, but when Blackwell went to bed, he tossed and turned and couldn't sleep. Sometime during the night, he heard a car turn around into the driveway. 
he went to the window to see who was arriving at such a late hour. In the moonlight, he saw a long black hearse filled with people. The driver of the hearse looked up at him. When Blackwell saw his hideous face, he shuddered. The driver called to him, there is room for one more. Then he waited for a minute or two and he drove off. In the morning, Blackwell told his friends what had happened. You were dreaming, they said. I must have been, he said, but it didn't seem like a dream. After breakfast, he went into Philadelphia. He spent the day high above the city in one of the new office buildings there. Late in the afternoon, he was waiting for an elevator to take him back down to the street. But when it arrived, it was very crowded. One of the passengers looked out and called to him. There is room for one more, he said. It was the driver of the hearse. No thanks, said Blackwell. I'll get the next one. The doors closed and the elevator started down. There was shrieking and screaming, then the sound of a crash. The elevator had fallen to the bottom of the shaft. Everyone aboard was killed. This story is called Porch. It comes from the collection Dark Blood Comes from the Feet by Emma J. Gibbon. I live in the woods, not like in a fairy tale, not some witchy cottage down a dark path, but a clean, airy trailer on a wooded lot. It's the boonies, but not in the middle of nowhere. I have neighbors, a paved road nearby. I don't know why that matters, but I just want you to know that. My cat, Rufus, is big and black with wide, gleaming green eyes. When the light hits its fur, it has a brownish, reddish tinge, like he was left in the rain for too long and rusted. He was supposed to be an inside cat. I promised the shelter, but you know how these things go. He was forever pleading to go out, escaping every chance he got. He's just happier when he gets to go outside. I know there are things out there that could hurt him. I'm a bad cat owner. It's just me and Rufus who live here. There was a man once, some years ago, but he left. I loved him, I think. He was tall and kind and gentle, but we did not understand each other. I feel like you don't need me, he said. I tried to tell him, show him how much I did need him, want him, but he left anyway, got involved with someone at work. I don't mind being alone. I mean, I'm not really. Rufus is good company, and I talk to people. I make soap and sell it online, so I talk to the people at the store, at the post office. I got some money from a household mold case when I was younger, so I do okay. I live quietly. I expect it to be just me and Rufus for quite some time. I've heard people talk about magic animals, like pet soulmates, I suppose. I don't know about that, but Rufus has felt more like a life partner 
than any other being I've known. I wonder if in the past I'd have been burnt at the stake for having a familiar. I probably would have been burnt at the stake for a lot of things. I can't remember exactly the first time Rufus brought me one of his gifts. It was spring. It was a tiny mouse. I heard Rufus scratch at the screen and went to let him in. He was sitting on the porch, the small animal laid in front of the step like a small offering. Rufus looked up at me and blinked his big, lamp-lit eyes. Oh, Rufus, I said. The poor thing. I assumed it was dead. There was no overt physical evidence of a mauling, but when I looked closely, it had a trickle of blood coming from its mouth. Rufus, I said, how could you? But then the little thing twitched, making me jump. A film of sickening sweat covered my skin. I couldn't stand the tiny creature's suffering, but back then I just didn't have the guts to finish it off. I knew other people hit things with a shovel. It's not that I wasn't physically capable. I'm a strong and sturdy woman, despite not being very outdoorsy. It was the thought of the tiny thing in pain that made my gorge rise. I didn't even know if I had a shovel. Maybe in the shed? Why couldn't Rufus have finished the poor thing off? I looked at Rufus. He blinked again, yawned, showing off his carnivore teeth. I knew cats did this. He thought I was a big, dumb, hairless cat who couldn't hunt and needed help. Maybe he was right. I dashed inside, bile bubbling in my throat. I googled what to do. It was a mess of conflicting advice. I had no gun. I already knew I wasn't going to decapitate or crush the head. Some mentioned asphyxiation with a jar. In the end, I took the coward's way out. Let nature take its course, the forum said. It's natural. Put it outside to die. I scooped the mouse into my hands and carried its quickly cooling body to the tree line. I'm sorry, I whispered to it. This is my fault. I put a predator in your mist. Rufus followed me. I thought he was judging me for rejecting his gift. I laid the mouse on the ground, gave him a bed of old leaves. I'm sorry, I said to him again. Sleep tight, die fast, no more pain. I put a saucer of water next to it, just in case a miracle happened. I walked back to the trailer, my heart crushed, not daring to look back. Rufus followed me, meowing plaintively. I talked to Judy at the store the next day. I still had not gone to the part of the yard where I had deposited the mouse. I'd not slept well. It haunted me. Judy was unconcerned. It's just what cats do. It's their nature, especially in spring, she said to me. Besides, mice are pests. Maybe Rufus should come and stay with me for a while. My barn is overrun. She laughed and then coughed a smoker's rasp. I knew I was probably overreacting. I lived in the country after all. I needed to toughen up. If you do this again, I said to Rufus as I filled his bowl with cat food, you'll have to become an indoor cat again. But I knew I couldn't do it to him. He was just so much happier being free to roam outside. A miracle hadn't happened. 
When I plucked up the courage to return to the mouse, it was stiff and cold. I used a trowel to dig a little grave by the oak trees and ask for his body to nourish the soil. I tried to preempt Rufus after that. I scanned the yard for animals before I let him out and even shouted, get out of the way, save yourselves. The squirrels scampered up the trees at the sound of my voice. It didn't work, of course. A couple weeks later, spring almost over, a vole breathing quick and fast on my porch, its back end mangled. Why? I said to Rufus. He sat cleaning his paws. I knew I couldn't carry it away again, thinking about it all night. So I grabbed a glass jar from the recycling and placed the vole inside, screwing the lid tight. I didn't stay to watch it expire. The internet said that it was one of the kindest things to do. I left it on the step to deal with it in the morning. I prayed to whatever vole god existed to take this child to a better place quickly. The next morning, when I was sure it was dead, I buried it next to the mouse. That wasn't the end of it, of course. It never is, is it? I had been set down a course. Rufus had a plan, and I had to follow it. I ended up doing things I said I wouldn't or couldn't do. Everything is always that simple, and always that difficult. Always. The first thing I was wrong about was that it didn't end in the spring. I'd heard that cats tended to get some kind of spring fever, but as the heat rose and the summer took over, his behavior didn't change. He continued bringing gifts. The second thing that I was wrong about was that Rufus was the one who was doing the deed. I had thought that he was bringing me his not quite completed kills. That might have been the case at first, but as time went on and he started bringing me bigger things, it became clear that he was collecting them rather than simply maiming them. The squirrel with an infected leg, the rabbit mauled by something much bigger than Rufus, a young cat run over by a car, a small, old, white-muzzled dog, its body full of tumors. I tried to save them at first. I drove the little squirrel to a wildlife rehabilitator in the next town. She gave her antibiotics and painkillers and a heating pad to lie on. She covered her in earth to get rid of the fleas. The squirrel didn't make it through the night. The woman called me in the morning. At least she died peacefully and painlessly. She said, you did the right thing. I loved her until the end. I tried not to cry when I told Judy at the store. She patted my arm and said, it was a shame, but that's how things go, you know? I took the cat and the dog to the vet, tried to find their owners, but nothing. Nothing could be done. I paid to have them both put to sleep. I took them home with me and buried them in the yard. The thought of mass cremation upset me. The rehabilitator lady's words rang in my ears. Perhaps that was what Rufus meant me to do. Perhaps I couldn't save them, but I could be an angel of death to those poor creatures. Love them until the end. That night, Rufus lay across my chest, directly over my heart, and slept. It seemed like a sign that I was right. It was fall. Roof bought, brought a raccoon, my favorite animal. I watched him drag it across the yard, praying that it would escape and run off into the woods. 
He was in bad shape, poor thing. I don't know how he had got into such a mess. His chest heaved. I knew he needed release. This time I was braver, but only because he kept his eyes closed. If he had looked up at me, I couldn't have done it. I grabbed the shovel that I'd bought from Home Depot on my last trip to town, retelling myself I would do yard work, but who was I kidding? I swung it down and put the poor little guy out of its misery. It was the least I could do. Rufus seemed satisfied and stalked inside while I buried the cooling body. This time I didn't stop the tears falling. I cried and cried for that little raccoon and wondered if I had the strength to complete the task that Rufus had set me on. There were more and more. A porcupine, a coyote, even a black bear cub. I would have never believed that Rufus could have brought them to my door if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. He was big for a cat, but still. Some of them I never witnessed. I would hear his meow, and there he was at the door with his latest offering. More and more, his gifts were much bigger than himself. I told Judy about it. She couldn't believe it either. Clever Rufus, she said. How on earth does he do it? I thought about telling her that I was meant to euthanize them rather than save them. Tell her that Rufus was a deliverer, and that's how he could manage the seemingly impossible. But when I was getting bread, I saw Judy in the shoplifter mirror. She was twirling her finger around her temple, then pointing at me. Crazy, I heard her stage whisper to another customer. I didn't bother talking to Judy after that. I did go to another store in town, though. I bought a gun. I knew that the shovel wasn't going to do it. I lived in constant fear that I wouldn't hit my target true or hard enough. To cause more pain and suffering than necessary was unbearable to me. There were no jars big enough. I asked the man behind the counter to give me something powerful that was easy to use. Not thinking about offing the old man, he said, chuckling. I tried to smile, but I think I just bared my teeth. I don't have an old man, I said. Be careful with that, he said, and handed me the gun. I'm always careful, I said, and tried to smile again. I practiced shooting in the yard. Rufus watched from the tree stump. I told the neighbors I was having trouble with rats. We live in the country. It's what people do. Of course there were more, bigger and bigger, a big old Maine Coon ailing from some disease, its fur matted and so thin that its legs looked like stalks, a starved Great Dane, scarred and tired, a deer with its back legs broken. I asked Rufus if he was sure, maybe they could be saved? But the way he blinked his big green eyes at me, I knew. I knew what he wanted me to do, what my role was so I dispatched them all as quickly as I could. Tough calluses studded my hands from digging all the graves. Winter was coming. So then, a reprieve. The winter got cold, very cold. Ice lined the driveway and the air was bitter in my lungs. We stayed in, going out as little as possible. Rufus stayed by the wood stove for the most part and I worked, making soaps, existing on the cans of food I had stashed away. 
I had kept the woodshed stocked. I went to the post office only when I had to, and bought necessities on the way back. I never went to Judy's store again. We hunkered down, reveling in the splendid isolation of winter. But then came the storm. Winter was almost over. It lingered, but the first breaths of spring were in the air, barely perceptible, but there under the frost. That morning, Rufus had escaped through my legs as I went to the woodshed, had, had run out into the trees. I was surprised that he would leave the warmth of the trailer, but took it as another sign that spring was nearly here. It was a cold but bright day. I kept an eye out for him, but didn't see him. I was unduly worried, and that night a storm whipped up outside of the likes that we hadn't seen in years. The wind howled around the trailer, almost as if it would pick up and carry it away like Dorothy's house. The rain was a deluge, cascading down the windows and walls. Out in the woods, I could hear the trees snapping and bending. I went out to the porch and shouted, Rufus, over and over again, but there was no way he could hear me over the roar of the weather. Instead, I took vigil at the window and watched for him as the storm raged. I sat there a long time, into the evening, past midnight. I jerked awake around 3 a.m., my cheek cold from the windowsill. The wind had died down and the rain had nearly stopped. I heard a familiar meow at the door. I knew he had brought something, but couldn't make out what it was through the wet smudged glass. It was bigger than anything else he had brought before. I opened the door and there on the step was a man. Younger than me, perhaps early thirties. He was naked and lay on his side in a fetal position. He was soaked, his dark hair plastered to his pale goose flesh skin. Rufus sat next to him, still as a statue. Rufus, how on earth did you? The man was shivering hard and I could see he was breathing only shallowly, his chest slowly rising and falling. He turned his head to look at me and tried to speak, but I could tell he was having trouble forming words. His eyes then rolled back and he passed out. Maybe we could save him, Rufus, I implored. Maybe this time is different. Rufus looked up at me steadily. He didn't blink this time, and I knew. I knew what I had to do, the same as I always had to do. I could argue with Rufus. I could argue with fate. I could try to argue with who and what I was, but there was no changing the outcome. Love them until the end. I placed the flat of my palm on the man's cool, clammy shoulder. He didn't respond. I went and got my gun and I delivered him as I was supposed to. The sun was just coming up, and I felt its warmth for the first time in months. I confess it was a shallow grave I placed him in. The ground was not quite thawed, and he was bigger than all the others. In the end, I used leaves to cover him up completely. I would work out the rest later. It was then that the miracle happened. I stood in my yard, soaked up to the skin, my palms burning from the shovel. At once, the mice and the voles, the rabbit and the raccoon, the porcupine, the coyote, the cats and the deer, the dogs and the bear, all the others crawled out of the holes I dug for them. 
All of them were whole and healthy and vibrant in the cold morning air. They were resurrected and complete. I stood agog, Rufus at my side, and they all ran in different directions, escaping back into life. I crouched down to Rufus. Is that it? I said. I stretched my hand out and he rubbed his cheek against it before stalking off into the woods. I went inside and made a cup of tea. Hi guys, it's Brittany again. If you haven't been scared away yet, thank you for joining us for some spooky campfire stories. Make sure you stop by the Lewistown Public Library before your next camping adventure to check out these items and more to get your scary fix and to share those stories with others. Information about all the stories that we read in this episode are in the show notes. Like we mentioned at the top of the episode, we are officially into summer now. And for me at least, there is truly nothing that beats a book and a cold drink while sitting in the sun on my patio. If this sounds like an ideal scenario for you, you'll want to tune in to our next episode where Danny and I will be pairing our favorite summer reads with our favorite summer cocktails because clearly we cannot get enough of summer. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you around. In the Stacks is produced by the staff at the Lewistown Public Library in Lewistown, Montana. Subscribe to In the Stacks on Spotify, Google, and all other major podcast platforms. Follow us at LPL Graham on Instagram or Lewistown Public Library on Facebook for the latest updates on library happenings, including the podcast. If you have an idea for an episode or a topic you would like us to explore, email us at lewistownpubliclibrary at gmail.com. Thank you for supporting the library.